There we go. Um, You're lucky there's a building here. Yeah, well, <laughs> apparently. I'll have to catch up on this story a little bit. I worked quite hard at producing this very nice building for you, and now I'm doing your, you're thinking of setting it on fire. It's dying. I don't know. Um, yeah, I got, uh, I got on the central line because I usually get here quite early and uh, there was a message, someone was on the lines or something oh, at Shepherd's no. Bush, so it's caught everyone off, how do I get here, get on the Piccadilly line, come to Alperton, I thought that's alright, do that and then catch a bus, only to find there's some sort of um, religious parade or march oh, yeah. coming out of Alperton School, yeah. thousands upon thousands of people, it was amazing, so because all the buses aren't running down Elian Road, so I don't know where the buses are going to so find a bus, walk around to um, Sainsbury's, uh, Alperton, and eventually catch a bus. So I'm here, praise the Lord. Okay. That's the most wonderful thing. So we're not going to be stopped. We see a pattern in the Old Testament of um, the people of God being blessed of God, and then, because perhaps of the blessing and their comfort in life, we see them slipping away from God. Um, not paying the attention they could, putting themselves first on, on many occasions. And then we see the people of God almost being decimated. But there's always someone, a group, a remnant, a small number of people who respond and pray. And God hears their prayers and responds to the prayer. If you read through the book of Daniel, you'll find in that case one person prayed, and it was Daniel. And through Daniel's prayer, because we know of no one else praying, God reverses the situation. He's got it all in mind what he's going to do, but it takes prayer to cause it to happen. God said in 70 years, because they were in captivity in Babylon, in 70 years I will release you. You think, well, why then are you asking Daniel to pray? Why aren't you just doing what you said? Because it needs prayer, the prayer of the saints, to cause the purposes and will of God to be worked out in our lives. That's the way God has just set the whole thing up. I could bring you this message and you would maybe infer I was telling you off. Many messages we tend to think that we're being told off. Um, I don't want you to think that. I want you to be encouraged because I believe nothing has changed. God calls his people to pray. If my people who are called by my name will turn, he says, will humble themselves, seek my face and pray, I will bring about change. I will heal the land. I will cause it. That is repeated over and over and over and over again. Not only in the Old Testament, in the New Testament as well. The principle of God hasn't changed. I think the church, the church in this country today, in this country, is being decimated. I do. Any, any if you go on your... A Google thing and put statistics of the church, the figures they give you are quite frightening. The numbers dropping all the time where people are turning away from God and turning away from church. And the, the Anglicans were very good at keeping records of numbers. They count every person that comes into every meeting in their church. It's all logged. They said the Church of England might not go beyond 2040. It, 
it will not exist. If the current fall in numbers continues in that same vein, an Anglican church closes every five days. <coughs> and that's not only that, that's other churches as well. The Methodist movement, which was so powerful, probably won't be around in the next 10 years. It won't exist even, because you just can't contain it. The different ministers I've known, there sometimes one is in charge of two or three churches with just a small number of people in them, and you know, year after year, they're just going to close and close and close. So I'm not scaremongering, I'm really not. I'm just stating the facts, and you don't have to take my word for it. You can look up the statistics yourself, and you think, this is awful. Only about four to five million people attend church Sunday by Sunday in the UK. Out of a population of 60 million people. So there we go. It, 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 it's something we need to consider. But we have the answer. We have the answer. It's clear in here. We have to humble ourselves and turn to our God and pray. We think maybe we've got to do this program or that program or reach out here or reach out there or create this or create that or be more relative or uh, relevant to people. We think all it No, no, no. We pray and let God tell us what we do. That's it. He hasn't given us a hard thing to do. To gather together in his name and to pray is not a hard thing to do. So uh, the message I want to bring to you just, I think, uh, shows this very, very clearly. In Mark 11, we read the account of Jesus cursing the fig tree. I want to focus your attention on that. Uh, this strange event happened on what might be considered a very difficult day in the life of Jesus. It was a hard day. In the morning, he's on his way from Bethany to Jerusalem. He sees a tree and he curses the tree. That's not a good start to the day. He curses it because he can't get fruit from it because he's feeling hungry. He eventually gets to Jerusalem with the disciples that are with him. And uh, he's so incensed at what he sees in the temple courts, all the people buying and selling and doing all this sort of stuff, he, he makes a whip and he drives them all out. So that's, so far, it's not a good day, is it? Then there are thousands of people because it's Pentecost and he starts to preach to them and he preaches such a dynamic sermon, similar, well, in words to what I'm preaching this morning, he preaches this sermon to them. It says the people were amazed at his teaching and at that, the the leaders, the religious leaders of the day, they think we must kill him and destroy him. Not a good day. All that happens in one day in Jesus' life, just the week before his crucifixion. The next day, though, we will discover as we read it and expand this story that he uses all of these events, the cursing of the fig tree, what happened in the temple, what happened afterwards, to, in the sternest possible way, I believe, to show us that a religious life without substance is unacceptable to God. 
so if I challenge you with anything, I know you all love the Lord. You're here because you love the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we end up like so many that we read about in the Old Testament, that we're comfortable in our Christianity, we're comfortable in our life, and we end up um, just becoming easy with what we've got. There's no real substance in our life, dynamic movement, things happening as it were, God intervening and doing things in us, and we've sort of accepted that, it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. We can be so busy with legitimate things that somehow God is put to one side a little bit. We love him and we'll be there on Sunday and we read our Bibles and we'll pray from time to time, but it's fine. God says that's, that's not acceptable. I've always demanded more than that. In fact, I demand everything from you. Everything, everything. To understand what Jesus then wants to teach us, it's important that we recognize that the cleansing of the temple fits between the two stories about the fig tree. It's not an accident. He starts the story of the fig tree, then he cleanses the temple, then he explains why the fig tree was cursed. So you have to put it all together, otherwise it's like a sandwich, it doesn't make sense. I don't like sandwiches, just bread, yes? But have something in the middle. And so here we have a sandwich. We have a cursing, we have the cleansing of the temple, and then we have the explanation of what the cursing was all about. That's where we're going this morning. Let me read this passage to you. It's in Mark chapter 11, and we'll start at verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, it found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is, uh, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priest and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw a fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look! The fig tree you cursed is withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, I will do it for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. 
And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. It's the week leading up to the crucifixion. Uh, it's covered very fully in the scriptures. In fact, this week has covered more clearly and in depth than any other passage of time in the Bible. They are staying in Bethany. Some friends of theirs, uh, they're lodging with them, their disciples. It's about a 40-minute walk down from Bethany to Jerusalem. They leave, I think, relatively early in the morning, and they start on their journey. Jesus walking down, he feels hungry, it says. He sees a fig tree, so he says, come on, we'll have some figs and uh, take them here. Jesus knows, though, that there'll be no figs on the fig tree. Doesn't that strike you as odd? I mean, it wasn't the season for figs. I don't know much about vegetables and gardens and things like that. But I know if I look for pears in July, I'm not going to find them on a pear tree. I know they come later in the season, probably around September time. Well, Jesus is ignorant. He knows when the trees bear fruit. So why did he even do that? Why did he say, let's go and see if there's any figs on the fig tree, when he knew full well they wouldn't be there? No chance of them being there at all. When he gets to the fig tree, he does something that's even stranger. He curses it. <laughs> is that really fair? I mean, it isn't the season for figs. There's no figs there. And yet you're cursing the tree. And how does he curse it? Did you notice? He speaks to the tree. That's what a curse is, isn't it? It's when words are spoken out over something else or someone. But he actually curses the tree. He speaks to the tree. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He says it so loud, not only the tree hears it, hears it but all the disciples around it hear clearly what he's saying. What's he doing? He's teaching. He's teaching us something. Something we need to learn. Now we move to the scene of the events in the temple, in the courtyard. People have turned the temple courtyard into a marketplace. It was merely for where people could gather together. Some were allowed to go into the very heart of the, the temple. Others had to stay at distances and other distances. But that's where the people generally gathered to go in. It was never meant to be a marketplace. Never meant to be a place for buying and selling and trading. They were exchanging money. They were selling animals and they were selling birds for the sacrifices that had to be made. You say, well, wasn't that all right? No, it wasn't all right. That had to happen, but it shouldn't have happened in the temple. The house of God is for the things pertaining to God and nothing else. He overturns the tables, it says, of the money changers. He drives out selling the animals and the birds. And he denies merchants access across or even to come in to the temple court. It was Pentecost. Uh, no, it wasn't Pentecost. 
What was the feast? Yeah, it was Pentecost. Sorry, Pentecost. Yes. So there's, there's literally thousands of people. In fact, I read a little bit around it. I reckon there's about a million people came when it was festival time in Jerusalem. A million more than lived there originally. So there's, there's scores and scores of people, and they're all around the temple, and they're all looking at everything that's, that's going on. Jesus starts to preach to them. This was quite common for him to do that. He's caused a big kerfuffle, hasn't he? Throwing all these people out, making all this noise, all this stirring up. So the people, they're almost anticipating he'll say something to them. He preaches a sermon. He, he bases it on, we think, two verses. We're only given the two verses that he preaches from. One is found in Isaiah 56 and verse 7. He says, my house will be called a house of prayer for who? Not for Israel. For all the nations. This house shall be a house of prayer, not for you, but for the nations. You gather to pray not for you. You are blessed. Amazingly blessed of God. You gather in the house of God to pray for the nation and the nations. When we gather together for prayer, our focus should not be on ourselves. Our focus should be on what is happening outside of the walls of this church. This nation, the church in this nation, is being decimated. It really, really is. And so when we gather together, our attention is on, Lord, what do we have to do to turn this situation around? To turn it around in the world, our focus must be outside. And then he picks another verse, which is Jeremiah 7:11. He says, you have made, you have made it, this house of God, a den of robbers. Oh, that's a harsh word, isn't it? He didn't pull any punches on this sermon at all. You, he says, you people have turned this place where we should be reaching out for the nations to God in prayer, you've turned it into a, a den of robbers. You are robbing from God, he is saying. You are robbing from the world. You're robbing what Christ came to do to save the world because you're not focused on the world. You're focused on yourself and your own needs here. You're robbing the world. You're robbing God. You're robbing Jesus Christ. We're robbers if we're just praying and looking after ourselves. Then he says that evening he returns back to Bethany. The next day, it appears that Jesus leaves sort of the same time and he moves down the same route, the same road with his disciples and they pass the fig tree like they would. And Peter speaks up. Have you noticed how Peter always speaks up? Always. It's amazing. So many times. He says, Rabbi, look. The fig tree you cursed has withered. I love Peter. I'll explain why in a minute. It was obvious that the fig tree had withered. I don't know whether all the, the leaves, I don't know how this would work, all the leaves had crumpled up and were dry. I don't know if lots of leaves had fallen off. But it was obvious just to Peter, a fisherman, that this 
tree is got no life in it. It says, Jesus explains, he said, listen, no longer is life flowing up through the roots of this tree. Isn't that interesting? It's died from the roots upwards. It isn't that it was plighted with something, or something hit it, or some disease struck it. No, none of those things destroyed this tree. What destroyed it was the life was cut off from it. See, there is a danger. If we ignore God, the very life that sustains us is cut off. It's cut off. And there's no life in our tree. If we're not bearing fruit, he says, I'll cut the very life off that sustains the tree. <laughs> Peter's often the one who speaks up, isn't he? We've all laughed at Peter, haven't we? Many preachers have mocked him. I must admit, I joined the ranks. I too have made fun of Peter. Interesting. The last time I did that, when I went home, the Holy Spirit had a strong word with me. He said, don't you ever, ever do that again. He said, do you know how precious Peter is to me? If you in your life, Philip, only do half what Peter does, half, you see, what right are we to criticise or to laugh at him? <coughs> in fact, his clumsy outspokenness has taught us so much. Sometimes, perhaps Jesus wouldn't have answered the questions unless Peter pumped them out, said them declared what we would all wanted to have asked but were afraid of. Peter was never afraid to ask. Are you afraid of asking God some questions? When you've prayed and it doesn't come out like you want, do you ask God why? Do you challenge him on some things? You say, I don't understand this. I need some explanation. You've got to show me. I don't get this. I thought I was doing the right thing. But apparently I'm not. Can you explain this? Why is this happening? What's going on here? Show me, show me. Peter did this over and over and over again. Remember when Jesus called Peter, James and John and he took them up the Mount of Transfiguration. And they're just overawed, aren't they? They see Moses, Elijah. And God is speaking. And Peter thinks, let's do something really important here. Something sacred and wonderful. Let's build three shrines for them. This is his suggestion. And if you read that carefully, even as he's saying these things, God speaks right across his conversation and almost cuts him off. And he says to him this, he says, why don't you listen to Jesus? You read that story when you go home. He says, you come up with all these ideas. He says, why don't you just listen to what Jesus has to say? I think then that's so simple. 
You see, sometimes we come up with these plans and programs of what we should do and how we can build the church and how we should make it grow and what we should do. And I'm not saying that any of them are right or wrong. What I'm saying, instead of our ideas, we need to make sure that Jesus has suggested these ideas. And if he has, it's fine. Whatever it is, we need to do it. When he speaks, we respond. But don't do anything unless he speaks. But you know, often he won't speak to us because we don't go and speak to him. We must give time to God to speak to him, to listen to him, to hear what he has to say to us and then respond with what he tells us to do. It doesn't matter what they're doing down the road. It doesn't matter what you did 20 years ago. It doesn't matter what they did 100 years ago. It doesn't matter. Praise God that God has blessed what they've done. We have to do what he tells us to do. But we will never know unless we give ourselves to prayer. Corporately coming together to seek God's face. Not to ask him to do this, that and the other thing for us. But simply to seek his face and say, Lord... This nation is in a state. Show us the part that we have to play in turning these things around. Remember when uh, Jesus was telling his disciples one day, he said, I must go to the cross and die. And remember what Peter jumped up and said, no, 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 Lord, no, Lord, no, Lord, that's nonsense, you won't have to do that. There's Peter again, you see. But from that, when when. This is how we learn. His, his answer to Peter, he was saying, no, 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 listen, I must die, but you must die as well. In fact, and you must die, and you must die, and you must die. We must all die. It says, it's just not me, Jesus said. We all have to die. We have to lay down our lives. We have to put him as a priority and see what he wants us to spend our life on. We learned that when Peter blurted out a thing that seemed so ridiculous. And remember when Peter complained one day, he said, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. Peter, God bless him. And we learned then from that that God is no man's debtor. If you have sacrificed anything or given up anything, God is not your debtor. He never was anyway, but he'll make sure that everything is taken care of and repaid. And here again, thanks to Peter's outspokenness, Jesus launches into some things to explain why he cursed the fig tree, why all of those things happened in Jerusalem, in the temple, and now here. made a little list here for you. He explains to Peter that this life we live is about faith, genuine faith that bears fruit in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit of God must be born in our life. It's about being robust in our faith and not accepting a form of godliness. See, those thousands of people were accepting what was going on in the temple. I'm sure some weren't really pleased with it. But they sort of accepted it, the buying and the selling and the trading and everything that was going on in God's house. If there's something wrong, we need to be robust and say, this, this is wrong. This should not happen in the house of God. 
we must stop doing this if it's only us that stops doing this but the whole church must stop doing what it's doing if we want the blessing of God it's about speaking up and speaking to the problem he spoke to the tree you'd have thought a thought would have been good enough just Jesus to have thought tree wither but no he spoke to it we are to speak to the mountain. When we gather together to pray, we speak to the problems. We speak to the force of evil that is at work. We speak to a backslidden church if we think that's the case. We speak with our mouths out loud. Don't go to a prayer meeting and don't say anything. Speak out. Speak out. You can't be wrong. And if you're wrong, it doesn't matter. God understands all that. Speak out, speak out. Let God hear your words. It's about taking authority in the world when things go wrong. Jesus said, this house is a house for the nations. It's your job. It's about believing and not doubting. It's about not letting the church lose its mission. It's about looking out and not turning inward. It's about taking up our mandate to pray fervently. It's about walking in love and forgiveness. If God's going to turn things around. All of these things come out of that statement that Peter makes. Look, the tree's withered. And he stops to show them these things. A tree then without fruit is like a religion that does not meet the needs of the people. I'm embarrassed sometimes at the lack of power in the church. <laughs> we can make a lot of noise, can't we? Yes. We can put on a good show. Yes. But can we raise the dead? Heal the sick? Cast out demons, turn our nation around, see it come to Christ. And no, you say, well, we don't do that, God does that. He doesn't do it without us, He does it with us. Now, I'm not telling you all to give up your jobs and rush out there and become full time ministers. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about simply praying and allowing God to move through the power of our prayers. A house of God without prayer is like a marketplace where people indulge in themselves. That's all they were doing. They were just indulging in themselves. The cursing of the tree was not a malicious act of destruction by Jesus Christ. It was a vital truth that Jesus wanted to teach us. And he did it by example. So it cost him one of God's created trees. He made the point, didn't he? He made the point there's another passage and I'm going to finish on this one it's in Luke 13 if you have your Bibles it's, um, it's a parable again about a fig tree I'll read it to you from verses 6 to 9 Luke's Gospel chapter 13 then he told this parable a man had a fig tree planted in a vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it but didn't find any similar sort of thing isn't it so he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? This is his response to a tree that's bearing no fruit. It's useless. 
It's created to bear fruit. If it doesn't bear fruit, cut it down, put another tree in there that will bear fruit. Is that the point he's making? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and dig around it and fertilize it. Put horse manure there. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. He says, listen, give it one more chance. God is a God who gives us one more chance. He said, will you pray for the nation? Will you pray for the church in this nation? If, if you're not, it's like the tree not bearing fruit. And I'll just chop you down. I'm not going to turn this nation around, God says. I'm not going to do it. I'll do it with you. If you respond in this, this very small way, of coming to me, gathering together corporately, leaving all your cares and concerns and worries at home. You can pray for them at home, don't worry about that. But gathering together as God's people and crying out to God to do something, to turn this around, because if we don't, it won't. Somehow we think God will just do it, because it's Christian England. It's not promised in the word of God. He's promised his people, though, if we will humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our ways, he will heal our land and restore it. Let's pray together. Father, we've heard this sermon so many times. Amen, Lord. Um, we, we, we hear it again and again and again and somehow it evades us. We know without prayer very little happens. We have to pray. You set it up like that. As we pray, as we pray, then you respond and do the things you always want to do. And yet if we don't pray, it seems in some strange way you can't do those things. And so, Lord, I want to commit myself to pray for this nation. Lord, we don't know how long we've got. But Lord, this is one valuable, powerful thing we can all do. Is commit ourselves to see this nation turn around. Yes. See your power released again in our land. We don't know how you'll do it. We don't know how you'll use us. But Lord, do something in our hearts, we pray, to change us. Because if you don't change us and make us different to do this, we won't. We'll carry on doing the same thing. And Lord, for those that are doing it, Lord, continue to strengthen them. Lord, I pray this word would be an encouragement and a blessing to them. And it would be saying, yes, you're on the right track. Keep going, keep going. Keep pressing into me. And you will see the miraculous hand of God displayed in your nation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.